Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We have Fern and Gabby here. Hi. How are we this week? It's been a week. It has been. been a week. Yes. But always excited to be here. Always excited to chat with the two of you. Yes. 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 So we're here today. We're going to talk with Hannah later, but we wanted to give a quick intro to our fans and listeners about the podcast as we are transitioning again. Yes, we have some news. We are going to be taking a pause on the podcast for right now. As some of you all know, I have a mostly solo podcast called Recoveredish, and we are just realizing how much work it takes to do a podcast, which we should have known, but it's been a lot of work to do two podcasts. <laughs> yes. It's a full-time yes you know, job as we've been talking about to edit and produce uh, multiple podcasts. And (laughs) so we need to focus our efforts into one singular podcast to make sure we're putting out the best that we can. It's true. We, uh, it's been a lot of work to, to do two podcasts. You know, it it really is. Amanda has said this a couple of times that it really is like a full-time job just doing one podcast. So We've been, we've been doing a lot of work and we want to make sure that we are able to give our all to any project that we're doing. And so it makes sense for us to, to merge into one podcast and, and transition. And it sounds like it's, it's going to be a transition that is beneficial to us, I think, as three people who work really hard. But it's also going to be a positive transition for people who are listening that they're also getting like the best content, the best podcast that we can give them. And I mean, you know, this isn't our, like, we, we have a therapy practice yeah. that we run yeah. <laughs> and we see clients. So that takes up, especially, you know, Fern and Gabby, you all have, you know, you do so much work with the practice and therapists and supporting all of them and seeing clients. So yeah, this is something we've just been doing on the side, yeah. which has taken up more work than I think we initially anticipated. For sure. Yeah. And so like, that's what, you know, we're not going anywhere, right? Like Fern and I are still working and we're running the practices, multiple offices, right? Multiple (laughs) therapists across the country that we supervise and support. And, you know, once in a while we'll be popping into Recovered-ish to have further conversations, right? Like whether it's me and Fern and Amanda together or, you know, individually with Amanda or maybe joining in with another therapist from the group or a a special guest star and talking about all the things that we're still talking about. Yeah. So this is, this is, this is not a goodbye. This is what we would call a see you later then. So thank you to everybody that's listened and supported us for the past year and a half. And we're looking forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Just thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to, to either rate the, the show, rate the episode, just taking 30 to 45 minutes out of your day to, you know, listen to us talk and laugh and be ridiculous. And we hope we've helped and um, that you've gotten as much out of it as we have. And we hope you enjoy this final episode with Hannah. So with that, we will get into it. You're listening to the Therapy for Women podcast with licensed therapists, Amanda White, Fern Formel, and Gabby Salamone. Whether you're contemplating therapy for the first time, already in therapy, or reconsidering it, this podcast will empower you with tips, advice, and plenty of real talk so you can get the most out of your sessions. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Therapy for Women podcast. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Good. Welcome, welcome. Happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday. Yes. We have Hannah here with us today. Hannah McGrath. She's one of our therapists in our Philadelphia offices. So welcome, Hannah. Thanks, guys. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, really excited to have you here. We're really happy to be here with you today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Hannah, we pretty much ask everyone when they come on, right, like to just tell us – it's like an interview in that sense, right? Like tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what you specialize in, your process even to like becoming a therapist, all those fun things. Sure, yeah. So I decided to become a therapist pretty early on. It was really the first career that just felt right for me. So it was probably in about high school. And I think my journey was similar to a lot of other therapists in that, you know, a lot of us have kind of stuff from our family of origin or we've been in therapy ourselves. And so I would say I have a very loving family and that there also was some chaos growing up. And so I really saw the benefit of therapy for my siblings and really kind of felt the benefit of therapy for myself. And so I thought, I love people. I love building relationships with people. I really believe in just like what therapy has to offer. And so I decided that from like high school and I really have not looked back. Wow. I love that. I feel like Fern's like right there in the same boat as you of like, I knew from like a very young age, yes, I'm going to be a therapist. This is what I'm doing. It's for me. Mm -hmm. And here you guys are. Yeah. No, it's true. I was the same, Hannah. I was about 16, 17, I think, when I said, I want to do sex therapy, which is, is a whole thing in itself. But uh, yeah, no, very very similarly, really, really young to just kind of to think it, but then also to go forward with it, right? Where you actually pursue the education around it, I think is surprising, but in a, in a good way. Right. Well, and one thing I will say that I have felt really grateful for is in college. So I went in, studied psychology. I minored in French, which has no place in my life anymore. I barely can remember <laughs> anything. But I saw a lot of my friends struggling with, what do I want to study? What do I want to do with my life? And I think it can feel really hard to not have, even though it's really normal, mm -hmm to not have a strong sense of direction when you're in college, I think that can also be challenging for people. And so I felt really grateful to like have a direction that felt meaningful for me and to not necessarily have to go through that process of questioning what I wanted mm -hmm. my life to look like. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. So I guess in terms of my specialties, so if you look on the website, my specialties are eating disorders, faith transitions, OCD, and then just kind of like anxiety and depression. Eating disorders, I would say, also came out of personal experience. And I can talk a little bit more about that as we get into it. But a therapist I was working with at the time did a lot of work on intuitive eating. And I just found that to be transformative, not only in terms of relationship with food, but also just in my relationship with myself and really building a compassionate, loving friendship with myself. So like, tell us a little bit about your masters, plural, <laughs> right, Hannah? Yes. Yes. Hannah has two masters. So she's a smarty pants. I didn't pants. know that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Hannah, tell us a little bit about that. Cause I love that uh, little fun fact about you. So I knew I wanted to go to grad school to be a therapist. And after I graduated college, I actually took a year off and did a volunteer program for a year. And I was really 
So during that year, I took the GRE, I was looking into different grad programs, and just nothing felt right. Like nothing was clicking. And then I somehow found the website for the dual divinity and counseling program at Wake Forest, which is where I went. And I don't know if you two have ever had just like a gut moment. Like as soon as you see something or hear something, you just really feel almost like a chill. Like you know it's going to you know it's the right decision for you. So that's the feeling that I got with the program I did. So the first two years were getting a master in divinity. And then the second two years were getting a master's in counseling. And, you know, I always find it hard when people ask me, what was divinity school like? And I really don't even know how to describe it. I was going to say, I didn't realize Wake Forest had a divinity school. So I will say that. Yes. I'm really grateful for the program I did because it was a lot about kind of like deconstructing what you believe and reconstructing too, but a lot about questioning what you've believed and why you believe that. And it's a really progressive program. So it kind of encouraged me just to think about different parts of my identity in a way I never had before. And so I will say the struggle I've had with it is I think a lot of people might assume, oh, this person has an MDiv. This means that they're a Christian counselor, which is not how I identify. But I do think that spirituality, however it looks, can just be a really big part of someone's life. And I think if there's anything that I've taken from that experience, it's the importance of just kind of asking the questions, sitting with the questions, and not necessarily having an answer. Yeah, I think that's a big thing about faith and, you know, is that you get to ask a question and you get to kind of ponder it and see how it fits into your life and that there's not always a direct answer for faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it, Gabby, the way you just said of like kind of ponder the way it fits into your life because now people can disagree with this. That's okay. But I think that it is really something that's supposed to fit into your life and like a lens that is supposed to work for you rather than you contorting yourself to fit around that belief system or framework. So I I really love how you put that. No, I'll add like Hannah also does OCD work like me and scrupulosity is a form of OCD and I find that that comes up a lot with clients with OCD and scrupulosity. Can we explain what that word is? Because I've never heard it before. (laughs) (laughs) Scrupulosity, at least the way I understand it, is kind of the need for like moral perfection. So you're always scrutinizing yourself and asking, did I offend someone? Did I offend God? Am I a good enough person? And it is really kind of heartbreaking because it turns the desire to be a good person, which is a great thing. And it it kind of turns it into this, like, I'm never good enough. There's always something that I'm doing wrong. Yeah. And a lot of times it is based around a person's faith. So in rituals around their, their own individual faith. So like Judaism or Catholicism, like there's urgency to like Catholicism specifically, like urgency to confess, urgency to go to confession, mm-hmm. beliefs that like... Or like thoughts that like, I said the prayer wrong, so I have to do it again. I did the, you know, religion has a lot of rituals, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I did it wrong, so I have to do it again and again and again until like it just, it's just right. And it like, there's also like beliefs of like, if I didn't do it right, then I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, it's very complex. I will say, 
Another piece that was really impactful from my time in grad school was so between the summer between finishing divinity school and starting the counseling program, I did uh, an internship in hospital chaplaincy and I went to grad school in North Carolina and, you know, so to speak, the Bible belt. So religion and more kind of like evangelical Christianity is really woven into the fabric of life there. And so it was really interesting seeing how for some people, their faith was a huge source of comfort in their lives. And for other people, it was a huge source of stress or questioning or I don't believe in God anymore because how could this have happened to me if God is real? Mm -hmm. And so just a really interesting glimpse. And like, we all have a different relationship with spirituality. Yeah. And just that for some people, it's a really beautiful thing. And that for other people, it's a really painful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know obviously that today's episode is not meant to, (laughs) that we're not meant (laughs) to focus on religion or anything, but I do think you said that really, really beautifully, Hannah. And um, clearly it's still related to you, Hannah, and what you specialize in and a big part of what we're talking about today, which is self-kindness. Self-kindness, self-compassion. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, if you had asked me this 10 or 15 years ago, I probably would have laughed a little bit because at the time I, you know, I think like a lot of people thought that was kind of fluffy. Like a lot of people think that we can get further by being hard on ourselves than by being kind to ourselves. And you know, I definitely kind of grew up thinking that, yeah, that self-kindness was more like weakness or self-pity. And I will say that self-kindness has probably been one of the most transformative things throughout my life. It's something that I really believe in for myself and for clients. So yeah, I think that's kind of the underlying factor that I think can be really transformative. Yes. Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit, Hannah, about how you utilize this in the work that you do with your clients and how it kind of shows up with clients? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I look for as I start to work with clients is kind of learning a little bit about their relationship with themselves. Do they tend to be hard on themselves? Do they tend to be gentle and understanding with themselves? So really in the intake, I'll usually ask about their relationship with themselves. And I can tell some people are kind of caught off guard. And, you know, it just, it can be a new concept for some people. So I would say some clients really don't even kind of know how to answer or really have an understanding of what self-kindness is. Other clients will acknowledge, you know, I know I'm really hard on myself, but I would love to work on that. I would love to be more gentle with myself. There are some clients who, you know, for whatever reason, kind of already gravitate toward that. And then there are some people who understandably have a lot of resistance toward that or think that maybe being gentle with themselves would get in their way or isn't aligned with being a good person. So yeah, so I would say that from pretty early on in my work with clients, I'm trying to get a sense for how how that fits into their life. And then kind of from there, you know, I always go back to what one of my own therapists told me. And she framed it like, you know, instead of being judgmental with yourself, really always have a warm curiosity with yourself. And I just loved, I loved that phrasing. I mean, it makes me envision kind of like a, like, I don't know if you guys do this, but I tend to nap pretty frequently. 
And if I'm going to lie down for a nap, I want a really cozy, soft blanket. I don't want something that's like scratchy or thin. And so that's also how I think of, you know, your relationship with yourself. Like, wouldn't you rather meet yourself Mm. With kindness and like be that soft blanket for yourself. I love that. I want to be a soft blanket <laughs> for myself. Seriously, yeah, no, like I want to be a, like a cuddle buddy for myself, right? Like a fluffy, warm <laughs> place. Yeah, that you just like want to snuggle into. Yeah. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes clients will ask, okay. Yeah, maybe I'll be kind to myself, but like, what will that do? Where will that get me? How will that change anything? And that can be a hard question to sit with, but I think the reality is there is pain in life. There are going to be hard things that happen. There are going to be times where we feel anxious or angry or sad. And sometimes there's just not anything that's going to change that in the moment. And so if I'm gonna be going through something challenging, I would rather be in my own corner. I would rather be my own best friend rather than rather than like working against myself or beating myself up. How do you recognize when what you think is self-kindness is actually like working against yourself or isn't actually being kind to yourself but is maybe even being cruel to yourself? Like how does how does one figure that out? That's such a great question because I think often people might know that they're being unkind to themselves, but I think that's a trickier one to recognize if you think that you're being kind to yourself, but really it's actually kind of cruel to yourself. One way that I encourage people to to notice that is just by recognizing their self-talk. So asking themselves a couple questions. So one question you might ask yourself is, is this something that I would say to someone I really care about? And also, how would I feel if someone that I really care about said this to me? Mm. So that can be a good way to check in of like, is this genuinely kind? Like, would I really say this to someone that I really care about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another question that I like to ask is asking, like, is this is this helpful to me? Like, if I were to continue with this behavior or this pattern of thought, how will that look a year from now? Like, well, how will that be helpful to me? How will it be unhelpful to me? Okay, kind of like asking, like, would I be proud of myself? For the choice that I'm making right now? Would my future self be proud of this choice that I'm making right now? Right, right. And you know, Amanda has a great, I think it's in her book, Not Drinking Tonight, but in her chapter where she talks about self-care and she's getting a little bit at this where she's saying, you know, how do you recognize if something is self-care or if it's actually, well, not self-care, I guess. And the question she asks is, how will I feel after this? Will I feel refreshed, relieved? Will I feel drained, exhausted? I guess so I'm I'm thinking within the context of like what we would consider maybe more harmful behaviors, right? Whether it's an eating disorder or a self-harm, like I'm kind of going down the path of someone who cuts themselves, for example, and they they do feel better afterwards. They feel relief. I guess I'm curious what you think about that, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Well, as you know, this is something that I've run into in my own life. As I share in my bio, when I was in high school and college, I did have a history of self-harm and disordered eating. And yeah, I think it really gets at your question of sometimes behaviors that can be a way to take care of ourselves in the moment are also in the long run, ultimately not the kind of the best form of kindness or love to ourselves. I think the tricky thing is that I also felt a lot of shame around those behaviors. And so, which I think is really natural, you know, when someone's engaging in 
self-harm or disordered eating or any way, any kind of coping mechanism that is like really the, the best way they know in the moment. You know, I think we we do the best we know how to in the moment. And so really as I took the steps to kind of heal with both of those things, I really started to be curious about what purpose does this serve for me? Like what is this helping me with? What kind of what need is this really meeting? Because I do think that all of our behaviors are in response to meeting some kind of need. And I think what really gets in our way is when we just judge ourselves for what we're doing. And then that really robs us of the opportunity to ask, why am I doing this? Like, what what is missing? What am I struggling with? And how can I maybe meet that need in a way that is more compassionate? What do you say like when a client that's kind of resistant to the self-compassion, like the self-kindness work, the like, let's try to talk nicer to ourselves. Like, let's say like positive or like just like the kinder, not even positive, just like the giving great of grace to ourselves of like, I'm a human, like, it's okay. I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to always know exactly everything or like, I don't have to have all the answers. When clients like, that's just not acceptable. I have a couple thoughts on that. So my first thought is, I understand like a lot of people will say, you know, I tried affirmations. I can't do affirmations. And I do just want to acknowledge that, that they're like self-kindness can look a little bit different for everyone. So for some people, they're really able to look in the mirror every day and say, I love myself. I'm doing the best I can. And that really works for them. And for other people, that feels really fake and uncomfortable. And so while I am a believer sometimes in like fake it till you make it, I also want people to find what works for them. And I think kind of like process affirmations can be helpful too of, you know, maybe saying to yourself, like, I am doing the best I can, maybe can feel a little bit more authentic than I'm amazing. I'm beautiful. I totally believe in myself. Yeah, I'm never the one that's like, we're going to do those (laughs) type of affirmations at all. I'm like, we're going to just try to be a little nicer to ourselves and that like, we don't need to be perfect. I'm doing my best. I've got a lot on my plate. Like, just the acknowledgement of like yeah. the reality of a situation. Right. Right. Well, it makes me think too of the idea of like body neutrality and body positivity. Like not everyone can jump to body positivity. And so body neutrality is a great option too. And so similarly, like I think self-love can really be an incremental thing and you can take small steps there. And so what does it look like to just be a little bit less harsh to yourself than you were yesterday. What would it look like to be a little, to give yourself a little bit more grace, just like 5% more. Yeah. You don't need to give yourself a hundred percent more right now. And also I think like with people with perfectionism, right? Like their hundred percent is most people's like, it's like everybody else is giving like 200%. Right. And so I always say to people like that struggle with perfectionism, like we're going to try to give 80%. Right. Which is actually like a real hundred. (laughs) I like that. I think the other thing too, you know, is kind of exploring like, well, what feels safe about perfectionism? Mm -hmm. What feels safe about being Mm -hmm. critical and harsh with yourself? Because for a lot of people, like in childhood, if they grew up in homes that were really critical or had really high expectations to meet, it's natural to develop that really critical voice. And so I think just acknowledging like, you know, we develop a certain way for a reason and to really understand why did I develop this 
like really critical voice. And how did that protect me? How did that keep me safe? Is there any way it still keeps me safe? Yeah. I even think also of self-kindness as, I mean, I always go to boundaries and I'm specifically thinking about like work right now. And probably because this is work related. (laughs) I'm thinking like in the context of being a therapist, right? That, you know, sometimes being kind to yourself isn't taking on that client that week and shoving them into your schedule just because you're like, no, 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 I can see them. It's fine. Like I can, I can put them in and really what being kind yourself would be is like, no, you know what? Actually, you've already seen 24 clients this week. (laughs) You actually don't have any more hours to give. (laughs) Right. It's so funny you say that, Fern, because I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and I was telling this friend, you know, I really want to be less busy. I really want to feel more grounded. I want to have more free time. She was like, really, Hannah, are you sure? Like, are you sure you don't have an investment in staying busy? Because (laughs) I hear you saying these things that I don't see you changing anything. And You know, I think that's a good point that like when I work with clients on this, that also helps me hold myself accountable of if I'm encouraging other people to be kind to themselves, I really need to be practicing that in my own life too. And how does that look? And like you said, maybe that means not seeing the extra person that week. Yeah, that could look so many different ways. But I think just, you know, a reminder that like we've never fully arrived. There's always always a little bit more growth that can happen in terms of being kind and gentle with ourselves. I think it's also just like about like living in the moment and some mindfulness we'll say, right? That we have to be present in our lives and actually like take account of like what's going on in the present moment, not thinking about all of the other things, like the what if situations and scenarios that a lot of times we get stuck in. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Are either of you familiar with Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. A little. Not really at all for me. Okay. Okay. She was kind of one of the first researchers on self-compassion and she defines it as having three parts. So, and I'm going to not get the order right, but that's okay. So the three parts of self-compassion are self-kindness, which another term for it is warm-heartedness, which I just love. It makes me feel so glowy. (laughs) I love that. So... (laughs) So self-kindness, which is acknowledging that you are a human and you are deserving of the same kindness and care that you would give to someone else. And then the second part is common humanity, which is recognizing we all go through pain and that rather than being isolated by it, that we can find connection with other people through it. And then the third part, which Gabby, what you said made me think of this, is mindfulness. That part of self-compassion is recognizing how am I feeling in this moment and and remembering that it's a moment in time and that it's not going to last forever. Yes. Yeah. I read something recently and it was like living in the moment isn't really like this crazy, like lofty idea or like reserved for like super, you know, mellow and Zen people, right? It's the only way to live a life that's not infiltrated with like illusions. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Specifically, like the last sentence is like, it's the only thing your brain can actually comprehend. Right. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny. I think a lot about how I'm interested in somatic therapies just because, you know, kind of this idea of if we come home to our bodies, like that is how we're in the present moment. Like our body is only ever in the present moment. Yeah. And just kind of how that's connected. Yeah. I think that's, you know, a really great way to put it is like our bodies know what they're supposed to do. And how often do we tell our bodies, no, I know better. Oh my gosh. Well, exactly. And that goes back to 
like living a life that's really busy. And, you know, it can, I get it. It can feel risky to really slow down and ask like, what does my body need? What kind of nourishment does my body need? What kind of rest does my body need? What kind of connection does my body need? So I get it. Like that can be a hard question to really slow down. Cause then you need to, like, if you allow yourself to ask that, like it can kind of bring up the responsibility of really needing to attend to that and take care of yourself based on what comes up. Yeah. I like think about it sometimes. It's like we are like gaslighting our bodies, right? Like we're like, no, I know better. You need, you're saying you need sleep. No, no, I know I can do it on five hours. You're saying Mm -hmm. you need a day off of like from the gym. No, no. Like, or I'm saying you need a day off. Like you're like, no, no, I need, we need another day. We need to run another mile. We need, Mm -hmm. Right. You know, to push ourselves, we need to overextend. We even like with food, right? Like in diets and stuff, it's like your body's like, I know what I need. Like I'm hungry, feed mm-hmm. me. And we're like, no, no, mm-hmm. I know better. No carbs for you. And our body's like, please give me some carbohydrates. <laughs> right. Our bodies have so much wisdom, so much wisdom. Gabby, jumping back to what you were saying about if someone, like understandably has some resistance to the idea of being kinder to themselves. Another thing that I find to be helpful is doing kind of more inner child work because not all the time, but nine times out of 10, if someone is really struggling to be kind to their adult selves, they'll find it easier to be kinder to their their inner child or their childhood self. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, it can be helpful to like, put a picture of their childhood self on their bathroom mirror or as their phone background, just like a reminder of little you. And like, what does that little you need? Yeah. Like, what does that like small child in you need to hear? What does that like small child Mm -hmm. in you like really want from somebody like that they weren't getting? Like, what were you at those hard times? Like even sometimes like the voice in your head, like asking like who that voice in your head is. And it goes back to like, Mm -hmm. It's my teacher from fourth grade. It's my mother. It's my father. It's, you know, mm-hmm. XYZ telling me, you know, that I wasn't enough or I didn't, you know, know, like, why couldn't I do XYZ? And it's, and then that's like the repeated voice in our head. And it's like, well, what did you really need to hear at that age? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the uh, empty chair technique mm-hmm. when it comes to inner yes. child work. No one likes it. <laughs> God, <laughs> but it but it is helpful. So for those those listening who don't know what the empty chair technique is, um, it can be. I mean, it can be used in a bunch of different ways. But essentially, there's an empty chair, and you imagine that someone is sitting in that chair. It could be a parent, could be your eight year old self. You know, it could be someone else. But as far as inner child work, empty chair technique can be really helpful. Or like writing your eight year old self a letter. That's a, that's like a that's like a form of empty chair. You're just not doing it in your therapist's office talking to space. <laughs> um, but you know, kind of again going back to like inner child work and people's resistance. Hannah, how do you help people understand the benefits of doing inner child work? Because I do feel like a lot of people are resistant. They're like, my inner child's fine. I had a fine childhood. My childhood's not relevant. You know, like I don't need to focus on that. <laughs> yes. No. Well, it's so funny you ask because I've even noticed this in myself, like as a therapist in therapy. And I can remember a session where my therapist was saying, 
you know, it sounds like there's a part of you that feels like she's not enough. And I said, well, no, no, no. I've healed that part. She's not coming back. I'm totally fine. And really the more work we did around it, you know, because you realize that, you know, we can have these different core wounds in childhood and that healing is an ongoing process and that it's never, you know, you've never fully arrived, that it's kind of an ebb and flow. And sometimes these wounds get kicked back up. I think, again, what I try to look for is how is it, how has it been helpful to this person to shut off access to their inner child? Like, how has it been kind of a source of safety or a coping mechanism to disconnect from their inner child? And then I try to explore with people, you know, and and I can understand that resistance because, you know, it sounds very like woo-woo and out there. But I really try to encourage people, kind of like you were saying, to notice their self-talk and notice who does that sound like? Does that sound like a lot of what you were told as a kid? And, you know, really just exploring like how certain patterns that are getting in their way are connected to things that they learned in childhood. An image that really helps me when I think about this is like if you've ever seen a tree that's been chopped down and you look at the stump and you can see all the different rings going outwards, I think that's how we grow too. So as we grow and expand, we have all the different layers that are within us and the layers don't go away. Mm-hmm. Like you don't outgrow them. You contain them within you and then you you grow in a way that includes them in a way that's really beautiful and also means that, you know, childhood wounds aren't just like outgrown when you turn 18. I, I love all this imagery that's going on in this conversation. I'm such <laughs> a big fan of imagery in therapy and understanding ourselves. And I just got to say, I huge fan, Hannah. <laughs> Huge, huge fan. Thanks. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big imagery person, definitely. You know, I'm also thinking about how I think a big part of self-kindness and self-compassion is rebuilding trust mm. with yourself. I think that comes up in eating disorders. I think that comes up with OCD. I think that really comes up with a lot of the things that our clients bring to us is just rebuilding trust and rebuilding that connection with your inner wisdom and with your intuition. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We see this a lot with um, like cheating too. That's a big mm-hmm. like trusting yourself, trusting you know that you one didn't cause anything, right? But also that you know your chooser, your picker isn't broken, right? That like you can trust yourself to surround yourself with good partners, good people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the the trust piece and the self compassion and like just again that self kindness, right? Being kind to yourself, not blaming yourself, not punishing yourself. I agree with you, Hannah. I think that comes up in most areas of life. Yeah. And it's interesting just because, again, like going back to, yeah, as you grow up and there are so many ways where we become disconnected from that. And I think, you know, allowing yourself to forgive yourself for that too, because when we're growing up, we have to prioritize the things that will keep us connected to others, whether it's parents or caregivers or siblings or classmates. And so I think it can be easy to kind of blame yourself for becoming disconnected from that. Yeah, just kind of forgiving yourself for the ways that you became disconnected from yourself and allowing that to be kind of like a rebuilding process. I guess like one of the things keeps coming and popping in my brain is like, what I guess do you send clients home with like in terms of like homework around these topics? 
it kind of depends on what stage they're in. For some clients, it might be just even noticing your self-talk, like taking a couple minutes each day and noticing what were the thoughts that went through my head today? Like how was I, you know, if something happened where I felt annoyed or upset, was the voice in my head encouraging? Was it like dismissive? Um, So for some people, it's just taking a moment to notice what their self-talk is like. If someone already has a lot of awareness around what their self-talk is like, then the homework might be, okay, take a couple minutes each day and choose a situation where you were upset or where you were hard on yourself and just jot down how you would talk to your best friend if they were in that same situation. And that can be a way to help people build more kind self-talk because I do hear people say a lot, well, I don't even know where to start. Like, how would I be kind to myself? I don't even know like what that would look like. But I think for most people, again, trusting that you do know what it looks like because often that's the way you speak to other people. So for some people, the homework is just kind of reframing the way they're talking to themselves into like, how would you word that if you were saying that to your partner or your best friend or someone you really love? If someone's feeling really skeptical about it, the homework might be, okay, well, for the next week, like, maybe just explore the pros and cons of being really critical of yourself. You know, if it's something you have a lot of resistance around, like, you know, let's pay attention to that resistance. Like, let's explore if it is helpful for you to really kind of like be more harsh toward yourself. And so just getting people to notice in the moment, how is this helping me and how is this hurting me? I think a lot of it is just about kind of encouraging in the moment awareness. Mindfulness again. Yes. Yeah. Do you guys have any things that you do with your clients around self-kindness? One, I'm a therapist is definitely known for giving homework. I feel like I give homework most sessions, not like needlessly, right? But I just... I think it's motivation to work on things outside of therapy. And one of the ones that I will do around like negative self-talk specifically is I'll say like, one, let's identify when you recognize like that you are talking negatively to yourself, right? Because sometimes people don't even realize it, right? Like some people won't realize that, you know, they'll say like, oh my God, you're so stupid. Why'd you do that? They won't even, they won't even realize that like that's such an unkind way to talk to yourself. I kind of will do it in steps where I'll say, let's identify it. Let's just have you practice recognizing when you're doing it. And then we'll move into, okay, when you're able to recognize it, how do we change it to a neutral? It doesn't have to be a positive statement. How do we change it to a neutral statement, right? So, oh my God, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. Could go into, I wasn't able to do that because I hadn't learned how to do that, right? It's not, that's not a positive statement. It's just acknowledging like you didn't know how to do something because you hadn't learned it before. And then, I mean, you could take it a step further, right? And it's like, then how do we change a neutral statement into a positive statement? When I don't know how to do something, I ask questions and start to try to learn how to do it, right? So like the positive part is like, I ask questions, right? Like uh, that's a strength of mine. I do a lot of steps work when it comes to being kind to yourself. Like, let's start with this thing, then this part, then this part, especially if someone is resistant. I love that because I think that's the most sustainable way that growth happens. You know, it's rarely that we wake up one morning and everything's different and everything's changed overnight. But I think, you know, really noticing like like giving yourself permission to be on the journey instead of at the destination. And that looks like what small steps does it take to get to where I want to go? So I think that like 
doing that steps work is like a huge part of it. That's really meaningful. I like that steps work considering like all the work that I do, especially around OCD and even eating disorders is steps work, right? Like we're not cannonballing Mm -hmm. into the deep end. We're like slowly dipping and tiptoeing in which isn't the best way to get into a pool but that's the way to do the work because we're not trying to like overwhelm the central nervous system and just like have clients freak out and be like I can't do this right well and I think too and Gabby I wonder if you use this like with clients with anxiety and OCD but Fern when you were saying just like the noticing like what's Mm -hmm. the neutral Mm -hmm. statement here you know a lot of my clients are kind of like navigating intrusive thoughts And Mm -hmm. one technique I love for navigating intrusive thoughts is I think it's an acceptance and commitment therapy technique. I think it comes from that book, uh, The Happiness Trap. So the technique is just saying like, I am having the thought that X, Y, Z. And so for into what you were saying of like, I'm noticing in this moment that I didn't know or that it's Mm -hmm. hard to ask for help or so I think that can be a way of just like just stating it very neutrally, you know, like putting aside some of the value judgments that maybe we're putting on ourselves in that Absolutely. moment. This isn't always the case, obviously, but the way I kind of frame it is that like facts are neutral, right? Again, more or less, right? There are some facts that like we could say are universally like sad or upsetting, right? But in an instance like this, again, using the example of like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I didn't get that. A neutral fact is that you didn't get it because you had never – heard that. You'd never learned it. You'd never, right? So that's a fact. There's no emotional attachment to it. It just is, Yeah. right? I do a lot of like, it just is work. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think that's such a, like such a beautiful way to frame it with clients because then it goes back to, again, like what is safe about having impossibly high standards for ourselves? Like what's safe about being critical? And often it goes back to, well, like, you know, my parents always expected me to know or like in school like it was really embarrassing to get the wrong answer or Mm -hmm. you know whatever it might be for a client and so just really being compassionate about like you know nothing develops in in a vacuum and just like really exploring again like how was it safe for me to be really hard on myself and not allow mistakes and also like what did I need like what kind of nurturing presence did I really need at that time and I really strongly believe that we can learn to be that for ourselves. Absolutely. Hannah, I I did want to ask kind of like, I guess, wrapping up our episode here, but you've mentioned obviously a few like interventions, techniques, you've mentioned a couple books, but you know, our go-to question always at the end of our episodes, right, is if someone's not ready for therapy or doesn't want to go to therapy, do you have any recommendations or resources of things that could help, whether that's like podcasts or Instagram pages to follow or again, books or anything like that, things that could help any of our listeners? Yes, I do. I will have to like pare down my list because there's so many that comes to mind. But I guess the first thing I want to say is that, you know, as much as I believe therapy can offer something to everyone, it's also okay if someone doesn't feel ready or maybe never feels ready. I think there are Mm -hmm. other ways to engage in a lot of self-exploration and growth and healing. So, you know, again, with people trusting themselves, you know, I would just encourage people to trust like whether it's a decision that fits for them in this moment. Mm -hmm. And if someone really feels that therapy is not something that fits for them in this moment. So I guess a couple things come to mind. One book for me that was really helpful, and it's pretty old at this point, is The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. And it's also a really short book too, if someone's looking for something that's like not a super dense read. I also would say, so I mentioned Kristen Neff as the self-compassion researcher. 
She has a book called Self-Compassion, and she also has a lot of really great resources on her website. So many resources, so many activities. You can take a quiz to find out how compassionate you currently are with yourself. And she also has a lot of really good resources around like the myths of self-compassion and, you know, which could be helpful for clients who are maybe feeling or people who are feeling some resistance to that idea. But in terms of Instagram accounts, have you guys ever heard of Dr. Becky Kennedy? So she she is like a parenting coach and her organization is called Good Inside. And I love it because I think it's so helpful um, just in terms of like inner child stuff too and recognizing kind of maybe what you needed as a kid and how you can reparent yourself. Mm. So a lot of her content is like more geared towards people who are currently parents, but I found it to be really applicable in just like reparenting your own inner child. I love that. I love it because it's based on the idea that all of us are good inside and that, you know, we might just kind of need a little help hmm. being more aligned with that. We just need a, we need a nap. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. With the soft, cozy, warm blanket. The other one that I really like is this therapist called Fleur Broussard-Cade, I think. Her handle is uh, Fleur Delise Speaks. And I love it because each day she posts like a little encouraging note that she writes to herself. So it's a really beautiful, again, like affirmations that might feel more process-based to people. So it might feel a little more authentic. But I found those to be just really encouraging reminders. I love it. I love it. He's all great. Yeah. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, no, we're happy to have you. Thanks, everybody, for coming, and it was a great day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Therapy for Women podcast. To suggest a topic, submit a question, or find a qualified therapist, visit therapyforwomencenter.com.